All right, David, welcome to the dirt. Talk to us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why we should all lean in. Hey, Jim, thanks for having me. So my name is David Mignon. I'm the CEO for carparts.com. Uh, we're one of the fastest uh, growing player in the online aftermarket part sales. Uh, we built a destination for auto car, auto repair and maintenance. And uh, we just announced our 15th consecutive quarter of year over year growth. Uh, you know, we were a $300 million company a couple of years ago, and today we're on, on track to becoming a $700 million company. Wow. Wow. Sounds like a, sounds like a fun journey. It's been an incredible journey. Yes. So uh, a huge transformation. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Cause you guys are a 20 plus year old company. You've reinvented yourself. You know, you've done a lot to, to invigorate growth in the business. Um, Let's just let's start start at your entry point, right? Like, um, you know, when you got engaged with CarParts.com, what did it look like? Yeah, the company was very different. You know, I joined the company in 2019. At the time, I was the a chief operating officer and chief financial officer. Uh, the company had about two million dollars of cash. Uh, we were burning about a billion a million dollars a month, and we had about twenty million dollars of debt. So. Uh, you know, the company was, you know, going through a difficult time and our team came in and, and put together a new vision and a new strategy uh, and, and try to reinvigorate the business. And so we went on a journey to transform the business. Then COVID hit. Uh, so we had to adapt. And then over the last 18 months, we went through basically a second round of transformation since I've become where I was lucky enough to become the CEO. And so we built an exceptional team, a great business, uh, profitable. And now we have a lot of cash, we have no debt, and, and we're still growing despite the, the challenges in the environment. And you guys are publicly traded, correct? We have been publicly traded since 2007. Okay. Uh, you know, our stock has been up and down. Uh, right now, it's been a little tough in the stock market, but you know, the underlying business is, is very solid, and our balance sheet is extremely solid. All right. I won't take that as a stock tip, but maybe I will at the same time. How about that? Um, all right. If, so you've done a lot combining. I think you've got 17 uh, separate brands or entities that you kind of cobbled together under a single roof. Is that is that the right number first off? And um, yeah, in, in 2019, we started and we had 17 websites. Um, okay. You know, it sounds like a lot, but it was down from 300 websites uh, <laughs> about 10 years ago. So, you know, part of our transformation strategy was really to, to focus and, and, and build a brand for, for carparts.com. So at the time, the company had a different name, and we decided to double down on what we thought was a fantastic trademark that doesn't need explanation, that could get a ton of traffic. And today, carparts.com is our sole domain. Uh, you know, it's the flagship domain of the company, and it gets, it gets 100 million visitors a year. Wow, that's incredible. Can, can you talk us through um, any specifics around the, the evolution of the business model? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the time, you know, about five years ago, the business was a combination of, uh, you know, private label uh, product, a lot of collision parts, lights, mirrors, bumper covers. Um, and over the last five years, we've been making some significant investments to scale our supply chain. So as much as externally facing, we're an e-commerce company. Internally, we look at ourselves as a supply chain, logistics, transportation, and data science company. So you know, the last three years, we've deployed over $150 million of capital, and that was to scale the supply chain, to open fulfillment centers, to grow our inventory position. And so if you look at our inventory position today, we went from $40 million of inventory 
to $135 million of inventory. What makes our business so unique is that we source high quality parts straight from manufacturers overseas. We bring them to our distribution centers and then we ship them directly to consumers. So they can get the same quality parts that they get at a brick and mortar retailer, but for 30, 40, sometimes 50% of the cost. And it's the same quality. It's realistically the same product. It's just a different brand. So for customers that look for high quality items at a very attractive price, carparts.com is basically the number one destination. So is it typically consumers that are buying direct from you or how does that typically work out? Yeah, it's typically consumer. The majority of our business is direct to consumer. Um, you know, believe it or not, there's 300 million cars on the road today in the United States. And the average age of a car is 12.5 years. And we sell a lot of parts that are very easy to install on your own. You can go to YouTube. We have our own channel, but there's plenty of YouTube channels out there that explain how to do basic repairs. So if you want to change a headlight, a taillight, a mirror, windshield wipers, even brake pads, it's relatively simple and the information is out there. So instead of going to the dealer or a mechanic and spending $500 or $600 for you know, a simple job, you can go to YouTube, you can buy a part from us for $100, and you can do the job yourself, and it's relatively simple. Now, we do sell a lot of more complicated parts like suspension parts and steering parts and a lot of mechanical parts for you know, the people that are a little more sophisticated, but we have a full assortment of parts. We do collision, we do replacement, we do accessories, we do consumables, we do maintenance items. That's what makes the business so unique is that we carry a very wide assortment of parts for a lot of cars. Got it, got it. And when you, um, as part of your go-to-market, are you also, you know, uh, partnering with the cars.com and the Kelly Blue Books and those folks of the world that are, you know, have a certain, like, demographic that's already going to there? Or, or how, you know, how are you, I guess, attracting customers? Yeah, you know, a lot of the customers come through carparts.com. So we have a very strong presence on, on Google, but we also have, a, you know, a blog that gets 8 million visitors. We have a wow. very, very large customer list with up to 10 million, 10 million customers. So in terms of retention marketing, we have a lot of capabilities through the blog, through the email channel, through SMS, and then carparts.com gets a ton of visitors. And the other thing is, you know, and that's one of the beauty of having a website and a company that's been around for a while is that people are starting to, to know about us. Uh, you know, they know about carparts.com. They know about JC Whitney, which is a brand and a trademark that we own that's been around for over 100 years. So we're lucky enough in that we get a lot of people that already know about us. And, you know, a third of our revenues come from repeat customer. So, you know, as, as we continue to make investments in our customer experience, as we continue to expand our assortment, we're seeing our customers coming back more and more. And that's the beauty of the business. Obviously, you want repeat customers. So you mentioned um, you mentioned something earlier before about financial stability and um, kind of general operational and financial uh, health or, or discipline. You know, pick pick your pick your nomenclature. But when you look at um, where you are now compared to where you were, and you know, obviously we talk to a lot of founders about a lot of business owners about uh, cash flow flexibility and about you know those same things that you probably went through. There's this one thing that you said before that stood out to me, which was focus on the balance sheet as much as the income statement. So I ask you like, first off, what does that mean to you? And why is that so, so important to you and carparts.com? 
Yeah, you know, we're going to go through, and most companies go through different economic cycles. And sometimes times are very good, and sometimes times get more difficult. The consumer has more money, or they have less money, more spending power, less spending power. You know, we find that having a very strong balance sheet gives you that flexibility. So we've been focusing on, you know, generating free cash flow, staying debt free, paying off all the debt that we had five years ago, and generating that, like, that that ammunition so the balance sheet gives you a lot of flexibilities to invest in the business when needed to survive when things get tough and so you know we went through a very very good time during uh you know covid and stimulus and a lot of companies benefited from that acceleration of online but now that times are getting more difficult we're finding a lot of these companies spent all the money they don't have a strong balance sheet you know they're burning cash and not all yeah. of them are going to survive. Like I'm seeing a lot of players in our space actually struggle financially. Players that have been around for a long time because they don't have the balance sheet. So yes, they focused on the income statement. They grew their sales. They grew their margin. But at the end, you know, what pays the bills is the cash, not the sales. So we've been focusing on that, building our balance sheet. You know, we want, you know, I'm lucky enough to lead an organization that's been around for 27 years. And I want to make sure that I leave it significantly better than when I found it. And I also want to make sure that in 25 years, the company is much bigger, much more well-funded, and still debt-free. So I like that peace of mind. I'm a big believer in financial discipline. You track every dollar, and you do it on a cash basis. And that's been one of the things that made us so successful is we focus on cash flow generation, whereas companies sometimes focus too much on, on growth at all costs. So we're balancing growth, profit, and free cash flow generation. Is, are there any opportunities that you can speak to or uh, uh, ways that you can speak to of how managing this capital and towards cash flow flexibility has really impacted the company's trajectory? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of things that reversed the path of, of this company. Obviously, it was in, in, in financial troubles five years ago and cash flow generation one was, was one of the key components, uh, mm -hmm. you know, building a team, building a culture having a focus, strategic priorities, simplifying the business, communicating to investors. Like there's a lot of things that you need to do, but none of it matters unless you can manage your balance sheet and your income statement and your cash. Unfortunately, if you run out of cash, you go out of business and the music stops. Yeah. So for us, focusing on free cash flow has been what allows us to keep the music going. And as we go into a more difficult environment, you know, next year, we think it's going to be difficult for the consumer, which means it's going to be difficult for more companies. We're seeing mm -hmm. a lot of companies pull back because, you know, they get nervous. For us, we can be very fiscally conservative, but at the same time, be very aggressive when it comes to investments. So we're making a lot of big bets. You know, we're opening a big warehouse in Las Vegas, which is double the size of, of, of our current footprint. We're making investments in digital transformation. So Next year, uh, we're going to deploy a lot of capital. We're going to be very aggressive. But in terms of ROI, it's actually high ROI, low risk, high reward. So I'm actually quite excited about our ability to do that. In, in your experience, where do companies typically get that wrong? I, you know, I think it's a philosophy. It's a mindset. Uh, you know, the, the, for, for us, we micromanage cash uh, the way a small private company do it. You know, you see founders, you know, when they start a company, you know, they track every dollars, every new hire, every new contract. And we do this, you know, I still sign every job offer that goes out. I still sign every contract that goes out. I still approve a lot of things that might seem small, 
Um, but for me, it's very important because it adds up. You know, when it comes to financial discipline, a lot of what companies get wrong is it's death by a thousand cuts. I hire one person and I can afford it. And I hire another person and I can afford it. And then three and then four. But at the end of the year, you know, you've hired 12 people. And if you pay them $50,000 uh, a year, each of them, plus benefits, plus taxes, plus time off, it all adds up. So we try to have that long-term view of like, anytime I make a commitment, what's the impact on the financial statements for the next two to three years? All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the, something we haven't really talked a lot about on the dirt so far, which is you know, working with institutional public investors and the impact of that connected to not only your financials, but the business. What has been the, the most challenging part of working with these types of stakeholders? You know, I, I think the opportunity for me was to learn how to work with different institutional investors. So, you know, the largest investors on our uh, on our cap table are BlackRock and Vanguard. So obviously these are, you know, mega index funds. And then we have smaller hedge funds that will trade in and out of the stock. Then we have very long-term focused uh, investors. So what's interesting is that we tend to group institutional investors in that one big bucket, but every investor has a different size, has a different portfolio strategy, has a different holding period. So obviously what we're looking for is we're looking to maximize value for shareholders. That's our goal. That's why we exist. But at the same time, we're looking for investors that align with our long-term strategy. We're always looking for investors that have a long-term vision and a long-term holding period. But you know, if you're an investor, even for one day, you're still an investor. And my job is to make sure that I maximize shareholder value for you. Uh, the other thing is our employees are investors. Our vendors are investors. So I like to think about this kind of multi-stakeholder uh, ecosystem where we have the investors, the employees, the teams, the communities, and all of these. And our job is to create a long-term sustainable business that is good for all of these players. That's how we think we can win. Is there, is there anything that you know now that you wish you did back in 2019? Uh, there's a lot of things that I've learned, yes. Uh, you know, it, it's things that I've always known. Uh, but when you go through it and you make mistakes, you know, I, I, I like to think back about some of the mistakes that I made. A lot of times it's, uh, it's not making a decision fast enough. Uh, you know, I'm pretty decisive. Our team is very decisive. A lot of times I'll find there is a decision that I know I need to make and I take a little too long and sometimes I pay the price. But, you know, we, we live and learn. I uh, have a seven-year-old daughter and I tell her every time, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. So we've been lucky that we've been winning, but we've been learning at the same time. And for me, you know, as a first-time CEO, it's been a great journey because I get to evolve. I, I get to learn new things. I got myself a coach who's training me, mentoring me, helping me in the decision-making process. You know, we got a good board of directors that's super supportive. So uh, you know, I'm enjoying the journey. I'm enjoying making the mistakes as long as they're not fatal and we just keep going. You're a dad. Um, I actually just became a dad a few weeks ago, um, which is congratulations. Pretty, pretty cool. Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, I got a dad joke for you. How about that? <laughs> okay. What, what's a car's favorite meal? I don't know. Breakfast. <laughs> nice. Breakfast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, uh, our, uh, just to, to tie it back to our, uh, I'm always in selling mode, right? Our brand <laughs> of brakes is called Sure Stop. So break fast, Sure Stop. So, there we go. Yeah. Yes. It's I almost like, it. like we planned that. Yes. Almost. I, 
actually, if you're uh, in, not to go off topic, but I'll recommend a book that I've been reading that's really good. It's called Daily Dad by Ryan Holiday. Yeah, it's I got it. Re- you got it? I just got it. Yeah. It's really yeah. good. <laughs> so every day I take two minutes and I read that one page about how to become a, a better father. Awesome, dude. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, good note. Good note. Um, so back on the back on the in, investor side and really on, um, you know, some of the evolution of uh, of, of you and of, of your business. Right. Um, we, uh, you know, I, I talked to a lot of CEOs, CFOs, uh, folks that um, were in your former seat, you know, some that have aspirations to be a CEO, some that don't want a part of it. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of them that that do want a part of it, as soon as they get there, um, they realize they're better suited or they'd rather be the, in the CFO or COO seat. I'm just curious, like, as to your journey, right? Is it, it's, it's been recent, but also pretty, pretty cool ride, I imagine. Um, pretty, uh, you know, full of lots of uh, ups and downs. What, what was it that made you want to get into the CEO seat, especially for this company, for carparts.com, but also... Um, that has you excited to stay in it? Yeah, you know, I, it, it's funny. I, I got the opportunity, you know, our board of directors asked me to step in and, and, and become the CEO. So, you know, I, I'm lucky enough that I didn't have to, to ask for it or, or lobby. But, you know, uh, it's a fantastic journey. It's a lot of change. It's a big transformation. The requirements of the company and the business for a CEO are quite different than they are for a CFO and quite mm-hmm. different than they are for a CEO. So. You know, it took me a little time to kind of understand, uh, you know, nobody's ever ready to become a first time CEO. And looking back 18 months, I can't I don't even understand how I got the job because I was not ready. I, it's uh, there's so many things that you don't know, uh, but there's a lot of things out there. There's a lot of people out there that I've spoken to. You know, our board has been you know, a, a great ally and a great partner. So I'm always looking to learn. And so I took it with an open mind. And, you know, what are the needs of the business? What are the requirements of the job? What do I need to do? What do I need to change to be an effective CEO? And then, you know, try things. The other thing that I really decided to do early on is to stay myself. Um, you know, you all, everyone has this idea of like, this is what the CEO is supposed to look like and sound like. And I'm like, that's not me. I just want to yeah. be me. So I'll be kind of a different version of, of David, but it's still David. So, uh, you know, I, I like my style. I like who I am. And so, I'm just having fun doing it and I, I put in the work. So, you know, I haven't taken a day off in the last seven years and I don't intend on, on taking time off. I just, I love what I do. I love the team. I love the business. I love our strategy. Uh, and I think we have a lot of great things that we're working on. And my plan is that, you know, in the next three to five years, the company becomes unrecognizable. I just want to make sure that when I leave the company, whenever that is, I leave the company significantly better off than when I found it. For me, there for any, the team, for the shareholders. Are there any one or two things that, you know, you go back 18 months, you do different? It's hard to say. There's just so many decisions that I've made and some good ones and some small ones. You know, I, I think I would be, there's some things that I did that I was very happy about. Um, you know, I'll tell you what I did is as soon as I became the CEO, I spent a lot of time and I've always spent a lot of time with our people, our vendors to get a lot of the information. What I find is, you know, we have 1,800 people in our company and we have a lot of smart, talented, committed and passionate people. And so a lot of the information about how to build a strategy, how to make the company better, 
what opportunities to attack was already out there. I didn't come up with anything. I just went out and I got the information from our people. Uh, I, I think what I would do differently is I would try to go faster. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I learned, I'm still putting into effect today because some of the decisions were difficult. You know, it's going to cost money. It's going to take a long time. Uh, you know, it took me a while to kind of find my, my, my voice, my CEO voice. I knew exactly who I was when I was a COO. You put on the CEO hat and it's overnight, right? You're supposed overnight. to be a different person. It's a different job, but there's no job description. So, you know, if yeah. I could, I would go faster. But you know what? I'm very happy with where we are. The business is doing great. Um, the team is fantastic. And so I'm, I'm happy with most of the decisions that I made. Yeah, no, that's great, David. I'm curious, how has your, your leadership style evolved? Uh, since you took on the role of the CEO? You know, uh, the, the one thing that I changed a lot is I listen more than I talk. Uh, you know, as a CEO, I'm, I'm always very hands-on and I spend a lot of time with our vendors, with our customers, with our partners. You know, I'm, I'm in the field. I believe that you can't run a company from behind a desk. So mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in that leadership style. So that hasn't changed. Uh, but, you know, as a CEO or CFO, I was always expected to speak first. And so the biggest change is I try to be the one speaking last or not speaking at all. So I'll yeah. sit in a meeting with a team that, you know, I was able to build and recruit. And I think we have exceptionally talented people. So a lot of times I don't have anything to add. So I'll just listen. So, you know, I have one mouth and two ears. And so I try to use my ears a lot more, even though it's not really in my nature. You know, it's, it's active listening. I have to force myself to like, I'm surrounded by really smart people. If I don't say anything, things will get done and we are going to succeed as a company. So that's one. The other thing is on the time management piece is that there are certain meetings and certain decisions where I'm no longer involved. I used to think that I needed to be involved in every single decision and now I don't and things are much faster, much smoother. And I think as a company, we're actually making better decisions now that I'm not uh, in every single decision. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, been a good, it's, it's been a good journey and I'm enjoying it. Are there any um, call them pivotal moments or decisions that significantly impacted your journey as the CEO? Uh, you know, the team decisions are always tough. Um, you know, but you know, a lot of decisions can be made without me. And but there's a certain subset, you know, and usually it's one, two, three decisions a year where I'm the only person in the company that has the authority to do that. And these tend to be the most difficult ones. And, you know, I have a team and I have a board and I have people that I can talk to. But ultimately, you know, there's always multiple ways to skin the cat. And I have to be the one making that decision and then committing to it. So, you know, the, the team, when you're a company that's been around for 27 years and you have your eyes set on building a multi-billion dollar company, there's always difficult decision in terms of culture, team, capabilities. That's always the hardest. Yeah, yeah. It it sure is. You know, the, the, um, the auto market's kind of interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, you obviously have your, your niche within it, but I'm, I'm curious in terms of, you know, the vast array of customers that you could target towards. And you mentioned you've got a lot of, you know, comeback customers, right. Um, that, uh, that have enjoyed your services or your, your products for a long time. What, um, like how, how does your platform cater towards different, segments and um what are those segments yeah that's a really good question because we've been thinking about you know our strategic priorities for the next you know call it five years 
and how do we grow the business? You know, option one is you sell more stuff to your existing customers. Option two is you find customers that are adjacent to your current cohort and figure out what experience and what products you can deliver to them to get more business. And we're doing both. So, you know, the first, you know, three to four years where I was at the company, we expanded our assortment. We went from mostly collision to adding mechanical parts. But there's a lot of items, there's a lot of categories that historically we haven't played in that we're now really getting into. So it's more brands, it's more categories, it's more products. But to your point, you have to create a unique experience to target that specific customer. So part of our efforts and the investments that we're making, aggressive investments that we're making for next year, is digital transformation. Is building a platform that is scalable, but also modular, where you can make changes to specifically target customers. So today, and, and I'm, I'm really glad you asked this question, we have 100 million visitors, but we have one experience. And the investments that we're making is, how do we take this platform and give ourselves the ability to target different customers that require a unique experience? So personalization is a big part of what we're doing. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. My, one of my friends just bought a, a, uh, a gas station with a car garage attached. He's a longtime mechanic, right? Leaving Porsche, starting his own thing. And I just I'm thinking of, you know, his journey versus, you know, the truck enthusiasts journey versus, you know, the the stay at home mom who just needs to car, you know, to, to, to get her kids from from one place to the other. Um, and, I think the key point is to make sure that, you know, companies like us, we try to think about, you know, um, customer avatars or customer cohorts. It's like, you know, we, you have to pick a few. You can't go after every single customer base with every single product line. You can't be everything to everyone. Right. So I think part of what's made us successful over the last five years is that ability to focus and prioritize around you know, one category, grow this category, make it profitable, and start adding additional categories. So uh, I, I think that discipline in terms of inventory investments and marketing investments is also super important. What are those categories or one of the categories that you guys have in invested more in as a result of some of the you know, knowledge you've gained? Yeah, so the, the, the biggest category for us has been mechanical parts that require uh, expert knowledge. So again, historically, we've been very strong in you know, easier jobs, lights, mirrors, bumpers, brake pads. We're starting to really push in rotors, suspension, uh, a lot of things that require you to, op to pop the trunk and really start digging in, uh, certain belts, certain transmission components. We're finding that our customer is also sophisticated and that they know exactly what they want. They understand the quality that they want, but they also want it at a competitive price. They don't want to go to a brick and mortar retailer and buy a part for $250 when they can buy it from us at you know, 119 or 125. So uh, we're expanding that category. And ultimately what we want is if you have a car, let's say you have the, the highest selling car in America, a top selling car, which is a Ford F-150, right? Can we have every single part that is required to fix, repair, and maintain a Ford F-150. With um, obviously a lot of regulatory pushes um, and increasing popularity of electric cars or electric vehicles, how is, how is the parts industry evolving for this change in the vehicle marketplace? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's evolving. You know, about 80 to 90% of the parts are relatively the same outside of the battery and some of the transmission components. But you, know, you still need uh, collision parts, you still need lights and bumpers, you still need brakes and suspension. So we've been expanding our assortment to target certain EVs. Uh, 
you know, having said that, it's only two or three percent of the car population out there. It's a slow growth. Hmm. And the other thing is the infrastructure in the United States has to catch up. And right now we're finding a disconnect between the goals and the objectives of the regulators, which is, you know, 50 percent of the cars are this much or this much by 2030. But the infrastructure is not following. So at some point, there's going to be a disconnect between, hey, everyone needs to drive an EV, but how do we charge them? Right. Right. Yeah. How do we get anywhere? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So um, the uh, the 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 evolution or the the integration of technology in vehicles has actually also been something I'm curious about your take on, um, because that's obviously been increasing rapidly along with the pace of technology change. You know, how, how is carparts.com adapt, adapting to this evolving nature um, of, due to advancements, you know, AI, IoT, whatever you want to, whatever tech you want to throw in there? Um, how, how is carparts.com adapting towards that? Yeah, so interestingly enough, you know, our sweet spot is really cars that are between 8 and 15 years old. So okay. the cars that have a lot of, you know, IoT, electronic stuff haven't really reached our sweet spot. But I actually think one of the most interesting questions that we're, you know, we're becoming a part of this conversation is on the data piece. So who owns that data? If I'm a car owner and I buy, you know, a car and it has all these bells and whistles, the data gets collected, but who owns it? So today the car manufacturer owns them. As a customer, mm-hmm. I want to own my own data. I want to control my own destiny. So some of the things that we're doing is, you know, we're investing in, you know, uh, the Right to Repair Act, for example, to allow customers to choose between uh, OE parts and aftermarket parts. Educate the consumers out there that there's multiple solutions. I think the data piece uh, is going to be quite interesting. For me as a consumer, and this is my personal opinion, if I buy a car, it collects data. I want to own that data and I want to be able to upload it and share it with whoever I want. And over time, I actually think carparts.com could be an interesting part of that ecosystem where you could collect some of that data, upload it to us, and give you a specific recommendation as to what you need to do. Uh, that's where I think uh, the dealers and the OE manufacturers are pushing back because they want you to go to the yeah. dealer. I want you to be empowered to fix your car on your own if you want to. And I want you to be able to come to carparts.com so we can help you and just give you the information that you need. Whether or not you buy the parts from us, that's that's a side conversation. We want to be a destination so we can help you fix your car and make better decisions. Yeah, you know, there's a um, there's a lot of research I've recently looked at around um, brand loyalty versus, um, you know, the call it influencer loyalty or, you know, bas- basically uh, away from the brand and more towards, you know, people that you idolize, right? Yeah. Said differently. Are, are you seeing that in the car and truck marketplace where, you know, brand uh, loyalty isn't quite what it used to be? You know, I I think for me, I like to think about, it's not so much about the brand or the influencer is, you know, what are the company's values? What does the brand stand for? What is the emotional connection? What is the emotional reaction that you're trying to get? So, you know, I've been buying Nike products for the last call it 30 years. And when I think of Nike, I have this emotional reaction that like, it means more than just the brand. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do with, you know, carparts.com or, or JC Whitney. So, you know, I think influencers come and go uh, and, you know, they're a tool in the toolbox. But ultimately, for me, I try to think about, you know, what's our brand proposition? What is the best way to communicate it to our customers? But stay true to that brand. What is the brand voice? 
What is the event strategy? What is the emotional connection that we're trying to develop with our customers? That is really the most important thing. You know, influencer versus marketing is like, yeah. that's the tool. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, um, I'm curious, what is, what is the emotional reaction that you're looking to get from your average consumer at carparts.com? You know, what we're trying to do is, you know, instill this feeling of, of quality, of trust and, and loyalty. Now, obviously, you know, historically, our company was very good at competing on price. Now, you know, we have a great supply chain. We source directly from, you know, Taiwan or Europe or Mexico. We bring the parts to our distribution centers and we can offer those quality parts at a very attractive price. But ultimately, you don't want to be cutting prices over and over and just be the lowest price in the market. Like that's not a long-term proposition to generate, yeah. you know, free cash flow and build an exceptional business. So we've been really focused on trust, loyalty, and quality. That's the emotional reaction. That the the other thing too is there's a lot of friction and stress when it comes to auto repair, right? Yeah. It's kind of like going to the dentist. Like if you have a a weird you know weird noise in your car, you're like, oh, I got to take it to the me the mechanic. I don't know how much it's going to cost me. You know, yeah. I don't know if it's going to cost me five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. Like, what do I need to do? Like, I want to be car part. We want car parts to be. Oh, you know what? There is a place out there that can remove that friction, remove the stress, and maybe help me, kind of like a, a trusted friend, and kind of elevate the experience and put you back on your journey. Right? It's not about the parts. It's about the journey. Yeah, and the the uh, the content that you guys have produced, I gotta say, is is top notch in terms of you know do it yourselfers that are looking for an easy path towards doing it yourself. Um, it's it's great stuff, man. Really great. Yeah, we've we've been really focused on developing that content around that that brand, which is here are the tools and here's the information that you need to fix your car. Now, if you want to buy the parts from CarParts.com, here's the link. We're a destination. We have very attractive shipping options and prices. But if you want to buy the parts somewhere else, that's totally okay. We want carparts.com to be top of mind when it comes to empowering drivers to be on their journey. Don't think of us as you know, a parts store or a parts supplier. No, we want to be a trusted friend, an advisor. And then should you choose to decide to buy parts from us, great. We'll take it. And we'll yeah. ship the parts very quickly at a very competitive price. What in other industries, what advice um, would you give to other business owners that are, you know, undergoing a similar strategy, you know, con content first, right? Um, in terms of drawing in additional consumers, any, any lessons learned there in terms of content production, creation, flow through to marketing, you know, what, anything along those lines? Yeah. So for us, the big thing, which is, which we implemented, you know, this year is, is start. So we just launched our podcast. It's called In the Garage Podcast. It's on YouTube, and we're already getting a ton of views. And so, you know, so, some founders, some companies will just, you know, go back and forth and think about the, the 10 different ways that they can to start a podcast. Our strategy was like, let's just launch it. Let's get to 100 podcasts, 100 episodes, and then over time, it'll get better. You yeah. cannot have a podcast that has 100 episodes that doesn't work, that is not good. You're going to find things. Now, we're lucky in that, you know, we were able to produce it very quickly, great content, uh, great information, entertaining, and it's getting a ton of views. But uh, for me, it's just, just get started, right? Content marketing, retention marketing, branding, you got to start somewhere. Like the train has to be on the tracks and you have to start pushing the train. Even if it goes one mile per hour, it's moving forward. And eventually adding steam to it is easier. But, you know, just being still and just waiting for the perfect moment, that doesn't work for us. 
Yeah, well, hopefully you don't have to push too many trains, but uh, the analogy still sticks. That's good. That's where strategy comes in. That's where strategic priorities come in. You know, I think I can push three trains at a time. That's about it. I certainly cannot push 89 trains at a time, which, you know, you see some companies come back with, you know, these are 80 initiatives that I want to do, and I'm going to do all of them at once. Now, we pick the top three, and we overinvest our capital, our resources, our effort, and our team. And we think that with three, we can take our business from where it is today to way beyond a billion dollars, and we can do it profitably. That's terrific. This this has been you know super super helpful. Um, I think for those listening in, um, you know, I got, got one last question for you before we hop into our founder five, which is what has you the most excited about you know let's just say the next year about life, business, you know, whatever. Well, I'm super excited about our team. You know, we've spent the last 18 months building an exceptional team with functional experts, uh, people that work extremely hard, people that are extremely smart. I always told myself, if I walk into a meeting, I want to make sure that everyone around me is smarter than me. And I think I've been able to do that. So the team is exceptional, super motivated, super passionate. We have a lot of car people. You know, if you go to our fulfillment centers, we have exceptional people there that, you know, they receive our product. They store our product. They pick, pack, and ship. We have over a 1,000 associates. They do an exceptional job. They work 24, day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even during holidays. So I'm always super excited about the team and the business that we're building because you know, it takes people to do the job, and our people are incredible. That's awesome. That is incredible. Um, this has been incredible. So let's close things off with the Founder 5. Five quick hit questions about you, your growth, and carparts.com's growth. Uh, the first one is, what is the top KPI or metric that you are relentlessly focused on? Sales, margin, free cash flow. Regardless of the business, regarding of the, regardless of the industry, regardless of the economic environment, there's only three that will always be my top three. Sales, margin, free cash flow. All right, you hear it here, heard it here first. If you had to pick one, which one would it be? Free cash flow. Free cash flow. A little bit of a trend going on in this podcast. I like it. All right. Second one, top tip for growth stage business owners like yourself. Uh, build an exceptional team, uh, focus on the culture, and prioritize. Awesome. Uh, favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow? Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. By far one of the best. Uh, the other one, which I'm reading right now and is incredible. It's called Lincoln on Leadership. Really, oh, really good book. I haven't, I haven't highly recommend it. And Daily Dad. Don't and Daily Dad, one. of course, to be a, a great father. Yes. All right. Um, a piece of advice that counters what one would consider traditional wisdom. Uh, say no. Hmm. Yes. I think you build an exceptional business by saying no, not by saying yes. Enough said. All right, last one. What is going to be the title of your autobiography? Oh, I don't think I'm going to deserve one. I think I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to keep working. All right, we're going to we're going to call it just keep working. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> You've given a ton to our listeners today, David. So, um time for a little bit of self-promotion. What can those who how can those listening help you out? Uh, the one thing that anybody can do right now is to go to jcwhitney.com. It's our brand new website. We just launched it. It has a ton of content on a brand that's been around for 105 years. 
It is going to be the flagship brand of our business. It will become a half a billion dollar company within the next couple of years. So go to jcwhitney.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right. And on that note, how can those listening get in touch with you if they'd like to? Uh, you can go to, you know, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at David Mignon. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Okay. Awesome, David. Thanks for joining us on the dirt. And this has been a, a real pleasure, man. Thanks for having me, Jim. Good to see Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah, you too.